Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, November the 9th, 2020, and uh, again, this is episode 2770, and it's kind of a guerrilla podcast episode. It's a full episode with a full episode number and all, but there's going to be no real intro segment to this. Uh, in some ways, this will be like back when I first started in the car, just down and dirty right to the content. And the subject of today's podcast is thoughts on running a workshop, which, of course, is what I'm doing this week. And I was trying to think of what can I do to bring you guys some level of new content this week on the Survival Podcast? Because sitting down and recording like five new full episodes that you're accustomed to this week is just, it's not going to happen. It's not happening. I, there's no way I can do it. Wednesday, uh, my my guests start showing up. People are setting up. I got to feed everybody. Whatever. Uh, Monday and Tuesday next week, I'm getting ready for that to happen. I've got instructors and helpers coming in. I've already got some here. I'm doing this on Friday actually, but I've already got some here. I've got more people showing up this weekend. More people showing up Monday and Tuesday. Uh, it ain't happening. But I also didn't want to just run five rewinds. I really wanted to do some things a little bit different this time around. There'll probably be some rewinds this week, but I have a couple really great videos from the past off of YouTube that have never been on the show as a podcast, right? And they have some really deep content. And then, you know, I can throw something like this up for you guys on the Monday. So I want to start out with, like, what made me talk about this other than the fact that it's what I'm doing this week. It's that I hear a lot of people talk about running workshops, doing workshops, or workshops they went to that they were unhappy with, etc., and they would like to be able to do a better job, things like that. And I think that like workshops can help you get things done on your property. They absolutely can. We'll talk about not over-relying on that. They can help offset the cost of some improvements to a property if you're doing a property-level workshop. But this would apply to any type of a workshop or any type of a multi-day event where it's like a skills training or something like that. Uh, this could be something more like the Firefly Gatherings or something like that you do on a smaller scale, or maybe even a big thing like that. Right? This is getting people together. What it isn't is a trade show. I don't want you to think of it like a trade show where you know you have an event center and people have booths and stuff like that. Like that's its own thing, and I'm not really talking about that. This could apply to something more like Permaculture Voices was with Diego Footer. He did three years in a row of that, where it was more of a Hotel-type arrangement, people show up, presenters present, networking, all that. So anything from that to you know people camping on your property, that's, that's the world that we're in today. Um, and it, it, again, I want to stay centered around that because most of what I'm going to talk about is that type of thing. We'll, we'll apply to that type of thinking. Um, and again, we're talking multi-day events. This is not like... Okay, we're going to have people over for two hours uh, to you know do some work together and then have barbecue. Like that's really easy to do, and it's not a bad place to start if you have people locally that can come in. But I do think there are some things you should do if you want to go down this path to make yourself successful. And let's start off with what you likely should not expect to do. You should probably not expect to get a really large turnout unless you have a market or access to an influencer. So when I did my first workshop here at Nine Mile Farm, it was the year we moved in. We did some some, some projects, uh, wood core beds and things like that, and it was a pretty well-attended event. It was like 30-odd people. I think we charged 400 bucks instead of 500 We quickly figured out to be able to do things the way we wanted to do, we needed to charge about 500 bucks. And I've tried to keep that price. It's still the same price that it is, and it's always been ever since we moved it up to that. But we were able to get that kind of a turnout because I had a very successful podcast already. That was, believe it or not, eight years ago. That's how long we've been at Nine Mile Farm. But that's why I was able, and that was not as big as the events are now. There was less people than we have now. Um, I kept it a little smaller than we could have on purpose because I knew I didn't know what I was doing yet. 
And so not only do you probably, you're probably not going to have a huge turnout, unless you're doing it with more like some help from an event coordinator, you're doing it at a, at a hotel or something. If you're doing this on your property or a property that's like somebody's volunteered the property and you're putting it together, you should probably keep it at a reasonable headcount for your first one because it's going to take some time to really learn what you're doing. It, it really is. The next thing I would say to kind of keep in check is the idea that you'll pay for uh, large projects in full. Don't expect to do that. When we did the first major earthworks here, we did swales. We had a lot more people. We rented a very small excavator. Like You're going to find out if you go to do uh, like some sort of major earthworks on your property or something like that, As you step up to even like a mid-sized excavator, you start talking about something that's like a 24,000-pound or 36,000-pound machine like that, um, you're not going to be able to just go down to Joe Blow's Equipment Emporium and throw out a MasterCard and rent it. We rented, I think the machine we rented is like a 6,000-pound. It was like 63 or 6,600 pounds. So like a three-ton excavator, a mini-X. Um, it wasn't very expensive. It really wasn't. But... Having it here, paying somebody to operate it, et cetera, and then feeding everybody and all the other expenses that went with it. I can't say that we really made much money on that, that particular workshop. There's a lot of other things that were involved with that one as well. But we did okay. We probably did pay for, for at least the equipment and all that. We probably did put some money away that was profitable in that. But as you start increasing the size of a workshop... You really shouldn't be doing the event only to pay for work getting done. And if you're going to be doing that, you really need to think about how do you deliver value to the customer beyond they just got to be there while you did it. So making sure there's enough balance in that with real-world instruction, et cetera, so it's not just so that you can get work done. Because if you do that, I'm going to tell you right now, that because I've been to some like that, even with some big names attached to them, but there ended up not being enough meat and potatoes for the student to feel like, now I know what I can go do for myself. People feel taken advantage of when they're just, they see themselves used as, as like laborers. And you probably should not expect to make a living wage off workshops alone. So you probably shouldn't think that, you know, well, I'll do five workshops a year or three workshops a year or two workshops a year and I'll make enough money to pay for my life. I think it can be done. And I think that if, if you want to do it, you can get there. But I think when we are coming into this, that's not the mindset we should start at. We should start at, I want to be able to do this thing. I want to have a lot of fun with it. I want to, by the time it's all over, with B in the black on revenue. I do want to make some money on this, or it's not worth doing. Um, but it should be very much a, let's get our feet wet, figure this out, and then you can build it as you see fit going forward. That's exactly what we've done. I think... Here's some things you should not do, and most of these things I never did. And the reason I never did them is when I started thinking, I want to do this, I want, I want to do this, I went to a lot of workshops. Some I paid for out of my own pocket, some I was able to come to because I was able to use my influence to bring other people there. I was able to be a guest speaker or something like that. And because of that, uh, I got to do more than I could have ever done if I would have just been paying and taking time off. Understand that part of what you're doing, when you do a multi-day event, people are traveling to you, setting up a camp, staying there for three days, four days, five days. In the case of like a permaculture design course, maybe two weeks. You're asking them to spend not just their money, but their time with you. And most of the time that means time off work. And that either means they had vacation time that they can take, but now they're not, they don't have that vacation time to do something else with, or... They, they had to take time off from work and not get paid. So it double costs. So you, you really need to think about that when you're putting together a workshop, and it, not, it needs to not be all work. That person that comes to your experience needs to feel they got educated, entertained, and were part of something. All three of those things. If they only can say, well, you know, I got to go be a day laborer for four days, and they didn't really feel like they learned very much, It's going to be very hard for you to get people to want to come back. And if you want to do this once, it's one thing, right? I still think you should do a good job. But 
If you want to do this like as an annual event or make it part of your revenue stream, if you are a trainer, a teacher, a podcaster, because this could be any event. Like some of you guys are like, well, I don't do what Jack does. I'm not a podcaster or whatever. But maybe you're building a content-based business on fishing. Like there's a tremendous opportunity there, right? It's better than a Bass Pro Slops tackle show because you actually have the networking and, and everything. And you could find ways to do things. Like there, there's like any niche you can think of, you can probably – make this format work. I would say, even though we're not talking about trade shows today, if there's a trade show for your thing, then something scaled back like this that's more about having really switched on people come speak, getting to meet people you wouldn't otherwise be able to meet, keeping the event size somewhere between, let's say, 30 and 100. There's so much opportunity for people to actually get to know each other beyond you know some 20,000 people at an event that's like a, a trade show again or some kind of like thing like that where there's no way everybody can really talk to everybody and there's no way everybody can have access to the speakers. Like when you come here and you speak and instruct at my workshop, I expect that you are not going to come here, speak, and leave. There's one person in the history of this thing that took that approach and he never came back. Ever. Not because he wouldn't want to, but because he, and he, didn't, he struggled with why he wasn't coming back. I want people that come here to be open to talking to others, and that's what I would say. If you bring in a big name, right, you have somebody that's like well-known in your industry, it needs to be understood. You're here for this workshop. You're not here to show up, throw up, and leave, even partially. I expect my instructors to be accessible. It doesn't mean 24-7 or anything. Everybody needs time off. Everybody needs a break. But it's a three-day event. I expect you to be here all three days. Unless, you know, you couldn't do it and we made arrangements, you came in late, that's different, right? But I expect you to be accessible. And when somebody isn't, I back channel apologize for it, and then they don't come back. And I think that's really, really important. So it can't be all about you. It's got to be about them, and it's got to be about making sure they feel like way. Um, now, labor. Do not use volunteer labor. Do not use volunteer labor. Pay your staff and make sure they understand that they're to work. So when we did our first one, we made th this is a mistake we did make. We made it once and we never made it again. We had you can come for free, but you have to take care of being staff. So basically, you get to be here. And we realized that didn't work because people I want to see this session. I want to see that session. Well, we're making lunch right now for everybody. So don't do that. Figure out. What your budget's going to be for labor, how much labor you're going to have. Try not to underestimate how much work you're going to need done. You're better off being a little overstaffed than understaffed. And pay people. And if you, if you want to do this routinely, if you come here, you know there are people that kind of rotate in and out that we hire when we need an extra person or whatever. But we have a core staff of, of three people that frankly could run everything other than my part of this event if my wife wasn't here. I, I, I literally, like, occasionally they'll ask me, like, do you want to serve dinner a little early or whatever? But when it comes to food and the logistics of everything running, because those people have done this so many times, they're not needed. My, my father-in-law literally died in the middle of an event one time. And I felt terrible that my wife went to take care of that by herself as far as going to say goodbye to him and everything. And I wasn't there. Uh, but I felt that we knew it was coming. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like, and it happened right in the middle of it. And so she went down to the care facility and she was there when he passed and then she came home. And she was obviously not exactly in the game and was not expected to. The workshop went through as though that didn't happen. I think I was a little stressed out and I was a little mean to people and I, I felt bad for that. And I tried to make them understand that over things that were not quite right. Um, but overall... That staff just handled it. You'll never get there with volunteer labor, and you'll never, you'll never be able to say, "Look, I need this done now," with volunteer labor. So pay staff. Likewise, do not do the kind of I've seen this at, at events, and I think it is a terrible thing. Like you know, they serve lunch, and then like you're going to be on kitchen duty one day of the event to help clean up. The student, the paying student, absolutely effing no. The people that did that, I will never work with again. I will never work. I had no idea they were going to do such a thing. And I will not 
recommend anybody go to their workshops ever, ever, ever again unless they tell me they've changed that. And I liked them individually. And I think they're good people and they do good things. But I find it absolutely reprehensible that you're going to tell a student who paid to listen to a high-level instructor teach them is going to end up giving up an hour of that time to do dishes because you didn't pay your staff well enough to have enough staff to do it. No. You don't use volunteer labor. Now, you can have, like, if you want to have a volunteer helper or two to do, like, if you had somebody, like, all I need you to do is just, like, handle the garbage. Okay. And you want to, you want to give them a free seat or a discount for that or whatever, fine. Fine. But when it comes to the critical functions, you need to pay a person a fair rate for what they do and then hold them accountable to doing it. And if you're dissatisfied with them, then you hire somebody else next time. And when you find somebody that's good, you take care of them. Next, um, do not make people bring things that seem to me to be unreasonable to put as a burden on your students or your attendees because you don't want to take care of it. So for like that, every permaculture workshop I've ever been to, you know, you, you sign up and you're going to pay 700 bucks to be there for a week or whatever, and then you get a list of things you should bring. You know, it's like uh, notepads and whatever, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, uh, one of the th ones I did was like, you know, a drafting board would be helpful because we were doing some pretty high level design and all. And I was, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but that's fine. But then it was like uh, a plate, a cup, a bowl. Spoon, fork, knife. Bring your own flatware and your own dishware. So, the, and then you, you after your meal, you 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 do your dishes and then you take them home with you and all. And like, I, it, that did not bother me as bad as you know asking students to basically be staff, as you know, like your your turn, your duty turn, like it was the military or something. Um, in fact, the, the event that happened, that I just didn't do it. I'm just like, I'm not doing it. I'm not here for that. I, I'm not going to do KP duty when I'm supposed to be listening to someone speak. That's not happening. Um, so that really bugged me. The plate thing and all was like, I understand why it's done. But what we did is we went out and we bought that blue enamelware for camping because it lasts forever. It's easy to clean. At the end of the event, you throw it in the dishwasher and put it away for the year, etc. Um And we bought like a full sets of it. And then as we progressed, we realized we really don't need a bowl for everybody and a cup for everybody. So we just kept buying more and more of the plates. And we pretty much have enough plates for every serving. And then, you know, we do have people do their own dishes. And then we kind of have a staff member check and see if any are not really approved for reuse without rewash. And we'll have them rewashed. Um, and then we always have paper plates and we have plastic flatware. And that way, if there's any shortage or we're just trying to get through something quicker, we, we resort to that. But I don't think you should have people bringing in things that reasonably, when you're charging them good money, you should provide. Um, I, I do find it interesting, though, that sometimes you have to tell people to bring things I don't think you should have to tell them to bring. Here's an example. During our workshops, uh, we may have an outdoor shower solution. They're going to see if they, what we bought works for that. Um, going forward, but we'll still, even with that, it's only one, so we'll let people use the shower in our home. So that's like the only reason students are allowed in the house unless they're invited in for something specific. You can go in the house to use the shower, not the bathroom. We have porta potties, which I highly recommend, especially if you're on a septic tank. You cannot have 80 people pounding your septic tank for four days. You can't do it. I know people don't like porta potties, but it is what it is. Um, but when we would have people coming in and taking a shower, also like, do you have any towels? Like we were like we were a uh, like a, a, a pool resort and we were providing towel service and like no, like we did that time. But then it's like you know bring your own towels. Good lord, guys, you're supposed to be preppers. Um, but make sure if there are things that you you can't provide, like if you can't provide the dishes and stuff, I, what would be worse is to not tell people. So make sure you tell people to bring what they need to bring. And then make sure that you tell people to bring what you can't provide. I know it sounds pretty basic, but I've seen a lot of angst and bad blood over that. Um, try, do not try, okay? You should not try to see to things like ride shares, um, lodging, etc. People sharing hotel rooms and all that. Like, you should not even touch that, in my opinion. Because when you do, it's a potential thing that you can screw up because... 
you're now taking on a responsibility that I very much feel is an individual's responsibility to begin with. Like, if you want to share a ride to the airport with Bill, that's between you and Bill. I'm not getting involved with that. And I'm not even going to really go beyond, like, we have a Telegram group, and we have a Yahoo group, we have a MeWe group, right? And I don't care which one you use, we just make sure that you know they're available. There's a lot of ways for y'all to communicate with each other when you're coming to an event here. Y'all do that. And I think it's a great thing. But the way I've always put it to students is the way I feel about this is when your car shows up or your ride shows up and you come inside the gate and onto my property, your general happiness and well-being and safety becomes my responsibility. And it stays that way as my paying customer until you go back out the other side of it. And when you go back out the other side of it, you're back in your world, not mine. And I am no longer responsible for anything. I'm not going to provide taxi service. Like people want it. Like people are like, well, why don't we get a van and we can like chauffeur? No, 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 no. I'm not in the transportation business. Like if a bunch of you want to get together and, and, you know, instead of using Uber or Lyft, you want to get a minivan, you know, shuttle service and go in on it. Great. But I'm not, I have so many things I can screw up. I'm not inviting, you know, uh, what, what's the thing with the... I, there's a saying I'm thinking of here that I can't pull out of my head right now, but I'm not inviting failure in. Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to extend Murphy's ability to kick me in my balls to one of these things. Now, I will do things like this. We will contact a hotel. We will, when people fill out a form that they want to come here, we say, do you want to camp? Do you want to see to your own stuff, or would you like group hotel rate? And they just tick a box, and that gives us a general number. And we go, like, okay, we need like 15 rooms. We will contact the hotel, and we will say, hey, we got 15 people that are, you know, it's probably going to be 15 people anyway, that are going to want a room. Do you want to do, you want to do anything for us? Do you want to give us a group rate? And they'll say, yes, we do. And we'll say, okay. And they'll say, we're going to hold the rooms from this date to this date, and this is what people do to, or, to get a room. And then we will take that information, and we will put it out there publicly and say, here, If you want a group rate, this is what we've negotiated. If you think you can do better, if you want to do Airbnb, anything else, it's on you. And after this date, the group rate's no longer there. And that's that's as much as we do on that. Dorothy takes care of that. We do not get involved in much outside of the property. We, again, we'll put up a whiteboard and say, if, you know, now that you guys are all here, if you want to coordinate as to what time you're leaving, you want to give people rides. Like all of that's great. But we just don't touch it. We don't touch it, and we don't get involved with it. And that's the only way we can stay out of things. that, Because then what we're doing is we're getting involved in something that we do not have total control over. I don't have control over whether you actually show up with your car to give somebody a ride. I don't have control over whether you're, when, when, when the little bus that I've arranged for gets there, you got up out of your tent, you weren't sleeping because you were hungover drunk. I'm not going around doing, you know, morning wake-up service or anything like that. So now it's a thing that I'm, I'm in the middle of, and yet I don't control the result, and I'm charging for it. No, I do not do that. Uh, now, here's what I've learned. These are the things to do that make for a great experience. And anybody that's been here knows we really strive to do all of these things. Number one, feed the hell out of folks feed them really good one of the workshops I went to is a permaculture workshop they were so obsessed with all the food had to either be locally grown or organic that a lot of the food left a lot to be desired and we ended up eating very very vegan and I did not appreciate that this was an $800 four day workshop I charge I charge $500 for basically a three-and-a-half-day workshop. And most people tell me, I don't think when it comes all in on the drinks, the food, that I could do this for myself for this much money. I think maybe they could, but they don't feel that they could, and that is a hell of a value proposition. When I am giving you 800 bucks for four days of instruction or five days of instruction, and I am eating for dinner... Broccoli and tofu, I am not happy. I am not happy at all. I find that to be a complete under-delivery. This is why, like Saturday night here, we are feeding people a combination of brisket, elk sausage, 
rattlesnake sausage, quail legs. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Like, if you do this, when some shit goes wrong, like it rains for two of the four days, it's cold as shit, um, the power goes out, uh, and anything else that you can think of that can go wrong eventually will, people are very forgiving. They're very because they're like, you know what? The food was great, and the company was great, and I learned, and I had fun. And so even if they woke up really cold because the cold weather came in or they ended up wet because the rain fly blew off their tent or whatever, in the end, they're like, this was great. You know, and if you take care of, like, if people feel well-fed, they're going to feel well-cared for. Next, keep an active schedule, but include breaks and networking time. Build that into it. Don't stack your teachers back-to-back with no, no buffer. So if, you're, if you're speak, you're, you know, your, your first speaker of the morning... You're going to give them, let's say, 9 to 10, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. The, 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 your, your next speaker should probably not be going up until at least you know, 10, 15. And yes, it makes it where you might not be able to fit as many sessions in a day because those 15 minutes add up to an hour to an hour and a half by the end of the day. But you're better off with one less speaker and people not feeling rushed. And your speaker's not feeling rushed. And when somebody goes a little bit long, your next speaker's not sitting there like, and I've seen that so much, not so much at the events like I do, but the kind of trade show speaker event hybrids where I've been the speaker and I'm sitting there and I'm limited in my time to present and the guy before me is still jacking his jaws and he's 10 minutes into my time. I do not appreciate that. Your speakers will not appreciate that. Your students do not appreciate that. Make sure you build those buffers in between the sessions and also build in some networking time. Build in like an hour. We're just hanging out. Build in an hour of open sessions. That's one thing we're doing this year for the first time in an organized way. Like here's an hour. Actually, we're building like these are like hour and a half at the end of the day. Anybody can do anything between the last session and dinner that they want. You can go drink a beer and sit under a tree and, and, and contemplate your navel. You can sit down, like John Pugliano is bringing some lead casting gear. He's going to talk about how to cast lead. And I'm sure other people will just be like, they don't even think that they have anything to say. We'll start talking to other people and be like, well, I have some pictures on my laptop of what we do. Sit down and do that, right? And, and build that time in. And, you know, make sure you're putting out drinks and snacks and stuff during that network time. Um, next, barter blanket. The single best thing I think we ever did at Nine Mile Farm Workshops is start implementing barter blanket. And I just didn't do it for one event. It was the first event we didn't do it, and I just didn't think of it. I, had, I hadn't done it for years. Ron Hood, um, who was a, a friend of, like a brother to me, uh, it was the one that introduced me to the concept of barter blankets. And I had done it at his spring thing uh, get-together several years earlier, and I just forgot about it. And the second event we did, I, I kind of, I didn't even I didn't even plan on it, so I didn't tell people to bring things or whatever, and we did it anyway. And people figured out what they had of value, and then it became formalized. And that way, I make sure that my students that are coming know what barter blanket is, how it works, the basic etiquette of an advance. It's all in my event document, written down. And this year, I even released a video on it. Like, here's some really big mistakes people make. Don't come up and throw all... If you have five things to barter, don't come up and put it down like a swap meet and say, I have all five of these things. Put one thing down when you get the blanket and sell it. Because those other things you might be able to use to get something when somebody else makes an offer, right? And sell it. Sell the unique value of it. That has... It is amazing the way people laugh, the way people engage... And, and I'm not going to make the whole show on how to do barter blankets, but you also got to kind of like run the pulse of that thing. And when it starts to fade, you know, if you, you what a good thing you can do as a host is you kind of hold back like one really cool thing, and then like, you know, when there's an opportunity, go ahead and claim it, put that down, see if that picks it back up. And if it doesn't pick back up, say so you know what, guys, we're going to call it. If you're doing a three day event, people are there for three full days and staying overnight. I recommend the night of the second day. Because that way people have had a full day and evening of networking and all to get to know each other, and it gels a little bit better. And when we first did it, we did it the first night, and people felt like it was sprung on them a little bit fast, so we took that feedback. Next, 
I think it makes a lot of sense, unless you're doing something very specific for a reason, to put diversity of topics and instructors into your workshops. We did, you know, we kind of went through an evolution and we went really, really broad where I had some workshops, we had 16 sessions in three days with 16 instructors. And myself and David, who helps me a lot with the planning, we sat down and we looked at that and we said, you know, something's valuable because it's rare. And we're putting, two, like, half the students were also instructors is how it was coming out to be. And we're like, we need to pair that back. And we paired it back to very few instructors. And what we found is the better is a balance. So, um, for instance, this time we have about 15 sessions, 15 specific sessions. But we have about six presenters, seven presenters, maybe eight this time, maybe eight presenters. Eight presenters, 15 and 15 segments. That lets every student get at least a few that they really, really like and at least a, an instructor or two that they're really, really going to resonate with. And that way, if there's one that just doesn't do it for them, it's not that big of a deal. But it also doesn't kind of get out of hand trying to keep it organized. And it lets you be a little more selective with the quality of instruction that you're bringing to the table. And that diversity, as long as it kind of fits the overriding theme, that keeps people... That keeps people's minds going. It keeps them excited. They don't get bored. I think sitting around listening to, I don't care how much you love the idea of doing pastured poultry, but I think if you go through a day where you have four hours on pastured poultry, you, you don't even want to eat a piece of bacon the next day. I think it's too much. Not for this. This is fun, you know. Unless you've marketed it is, you know, we're going to talk about pastured poultry for three days, pastured poultry and pork for three days. Okay, fine. And the kind of people that show up for that will know that's what they're showing up for. Don't assume that even though you've spelled out everything really well, that people are really sure of exactly what you're doing, even though you gave them a schedule when they signed up. They, they, they might be kind of like, this is what we're doing. I've, I've had it. And I'm like, well, it's what it says we're doing. It's what I said we're doing for three months. It's what I said we were doing the day you signed up. It's what the, you know. So by having that diversity, it kind of checks that a little bit. So either be really, really tight on a thing or two. And be very clear about that or put enough diversity in there to keep everybody happy. It does something else that I think is it's one of the things that makes people very excited and makes people really enjoy it and makes people, when they leave, they're actually tired but they're excited. The diversity causes that mind to open up to possibilities. And I've had so many people say, I, 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 they're writing shit down like, I, I, I am. I, I got to get home and even process this. I have so many ideas. I want that because I know if I put that person out the door and out the other side of that gate where I'm no longer responsible for them, and they leave and they have like 20 crazy ass ideas in their head, it's probably one or two of them are going to stick and they're going to do it, and then they're going to forever associate that with what we do. And this is this is the part where you know I. I try not to brag about things. I know sometimes because I'm passionate, I sound like I am, but I really am a humble person. But if I don't tell you this right now, you may question if you're new to the show, like why should we listen to him on this? It's not because I can sell an event out in less than 10 minutes, which is what we did this year. That's one thing. That's just good sales and marketing. It's that my student ratio of returning students is over 70%. About 70% of any workshop will be people that have been here before. I would say the mean, if you said, like, of students that have been here before, how many times have they been to an event? It's I don't know for a fact, but it's probably four to five over eight years. And there are some students who have literally been to every event that I've done or all but one. Okay, almost every event I ever went to, with the exception of Nicole's, which I definitely would go back to. With the exception of Nicole, who, by the way, is doing her events modeled on my events. Okay? Every other place I ever went, even if I had a general good experience, I'm not going back. I'm not like, this is something I'm doing every year. I guess the exception before it blew up and went postal was dirt time. Dirt time was a totally different type of thing, but yeah, I would have kept going back to dirt time. But almost all the rest of it's like, I don't want to keep, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to spend this much time, this much energy, and this much money doing this again. When you can get 30 or 40% of people coming back year after year after year, you're doing something right. And I'm telling you, it is switching people's minds 
on to this idea that when I go back, I'm going to completely reboot my mind again. I'm going to get all this knowledge again. I'm going to get all these ideas again. Because you really can't teach people that much at something like this. All you can do is expose them to things and give them maybe a few concrete things of knowledge in each little topic. But when you give somebody like two or three concrete pieces of knowledge they didn't have in 10 or 15 things over three days, that's not normal. People in school, you know, recognized schools don't get that. They plod along in school. They don't, they don't shotgun your mind. And so when that happens, and it's all stuff you find interesting, your mind comes on and that mental computer starts going and I'm telling you if you've been here you know that's how it feels when you leave like I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and you listen to them and you're like well you're not because no one's going to do everything but they're going to do something and that's going to forever alter the way they look at what can be done and they're excited and then they've got this network that they formed and like the guy that does this presentation on this thing is actually a person He's not some big-name person that just presents for a living. And he's actually a person that did it, and he showed how he did it. And they can actually email that person. They'll be like, oh, yeah, I know you're having – yeah, I didn't cover that, but that here's how you fix that. And all of a sudden, all these people are talking together on Discord or Telegram or a, an e-group of some kind. And then that then becomes you did that for them, even though they did it for themselves. And that's when you end up with people coming back time and time and time again. Uh, next is – try as best you can to do a single speaking tract. Now, I never understood why there were so many multiple track events, and it would always end up that I would go to something. Like, I went to an event for WordPress blogging one time, and there was, like, four tracks, and a lot of the shit I didn't care about, but inevitably, when there were two things that I was like, I would really love to sit on either of these discussions... They were at the same time on competing tracks, and I hated it. I hated it. Then I tried to do my own first event, and reality gave me a little bit of kick in the ass and said, here's why they do that, because you're trying to accommodate everybody that wants to speak. Part of that can be done with better. Cause the other thing I've learned is a lot of times these multi-track events, it's like, well, you could lose this speaker, this speaker, and that speaker, and this speaker, because they all suck. Like You need to try to have good, solid instructors that are entertaining and engaging, and less is more that way. Because it, because what what really sucks are you you like you make your decision, you go into this tract, you sit down, the guy comes out, and it's like listening to paint dry to listen to them talk. Then you get up and leave, and you go to the other one, and everybody else made the right choice, and now you're stuck standing in the back. You know, so I I, I prefer to not do multiple tracks. However, for some things, it will make sense. We do a lot with entrepreneurship here. We're really not doing that this time. And the reason is we started to realize like how many people that come here, like they're not looking to start a business because they already have one. Or they have great careers and they're really happy. I mean, if you think about it, most of the people that come to a four-day event to spend $500 aren't really strapped for money. You get a few, and that's cool because they get exposure to these people that are more affluent, and that is good for, for kind of, helping them up their game and, and not be strapped anymore, right? But most people are, you know, we had a thing we were doing on entrepreneurship last time, a little session that I was doing with Nicole Sauce, and one of the guys we started talking to about goat yoga, and I'm getting on them because they don't have a, an email list for marketing, which is still a mistake, but I'm like, okay, well, how much goat yoga do you guys sell a year? And this was obviously an adjunct for them. He's like about $80,000 in sales. And I, we're talking down here at kind of a startup level. He's doing eighty grand in sales for goat yoga, whatever the hell that is. And his wife's kind of doing it part-time extra. So that really didn't fit him very well. He wasn't learning a lot from that. He was like, well, this is all we want out of it. Good. So like some things that maybe are a little more specialized, that's where you might do like competing tracks. And if you do that, one of the things that you can do is if you have enough room to do it twice – when you do them again, swap them so that they're, 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 you can go to both if you wanted to. Like maybe if you had four sessions that were competing tracks, you know, kind of catty corner them and, and do them twice. And that way somebody can pick two of the four. What we're doing, though, is we're just doing these open sessions. 
Anybody can do anything they want. So if Nicole wants to do a um, kickstart your your, uh, your 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 side hustle or something session on one of them, she can do that. And then people that want to go that can go to that. But our primary things that people are here for, we got it's this time we're doing this thing, right? And I think the the less multi track you do, the happier your students will be and the happier you'll be and the happier your presenters will be. So someone's coming to present at your thing if, if you're not doing it all yourself, which I think is a mistake on a multi-day event. Anybody that knows me knows my voice is gone by the end of these. If, if I did six sessions, it would really be gone. So spreading it out, that, that helps a lot. But it, it, I've been a speaker and on a multi-track th- event, and speaking off, opposite of me is Joel Salatin. That kind of sucked. It felt good when I actually got a huge turnout, and it turned out that his session started before mine, and some people left Joel Salatin to come listen to me. That felt really good. But I've also been in competing sessions where I got a terrible turnout because the other speaker was much more known in the space. Conversely, I've been the biggest name at an event, and some person that's just getting started, they've worked so hard, and they're so excited, and... I'm speaking, and there's 500 people in my session, and they're stacked to the door. And this person that just wanted an opportunity standing there, and maybe they're really good, and there's like, you know, 12 people. And that, I understand why it's done again, but the less of it you can do, I think the better off you'll be. Um, Another thing that we found that's really great is tell your story time, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. What people come up and say, like, you know, why they came and what they've got out of it and all. And a lot of times people want to do that at the beginning. A lot of times we'll do an intro at the beginning, but it's really fast. My name's Bill. I'm from here. I'm coming here. And my thing I hope they'll most learn is this. And and that way everybody kind of sort of gets to know each other. But um, what we usually do is, like, the last night we have people tell a much deeper story. Everybody can take, you know, three to five minutes to do it. We give them a microphone up in front. Not everybody does it, but... Some of the emotion that's poured out at the end of an event like this about how grateful they are and what they're going to do and somebody they met, how they're being helped, or a lot of times it's three years ago I came and this is what happened because of it, it's unbelievable. And as an event coordinator, sometimes I miss presentations and stuff because I'm fire stomping. I do not miss these because that's my real payday when I, when I hear that stuff. Uh, so that is that is huge. Having those kind of tell your tell your story time and building those relationship. You also need spies. You need spies because the people that come to your workshops like you where they wouldn't come. And generally speaking, if you do the right kind of marketing, you avoid Karens. So you don't have people that 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 come out and complain and bitch incessantly for no reason. I've seen that. Permaculture Voices was a perfect example. People were bitching because the food service wasn't all permaculture food, and the thing was being done at a hotel. And when you do a workshop at a hotel, you have to use their service. And like this is not—I mean, this was—it was ridiculous. It was great food, and there were Karens bitching about it. I don't want those people. I try to market those people out of my life in advance. So, <clears throat> if you do that. You have a friendly audience and people that really feel you did a lot for them. You'll find that even if you do something like you have people fill out a post-event survey and uh, you do it anonymously or whatever, they will tend to not tell you the things they were dissatisfied with. Especially if you did 90% a good job. But if you have spies, and your spies are your people that are part of your extended staff they're instructors that are also students they're trusted people who fit in with the students but they're not seen as you and those people will be told hey I didn't really like this you want those people to let you know because I am not satisfied with 90% satisfaction in my students I don't know that I will ever get to 100% satisfaction with my students, but I never, ever, ever, ever infinity will stop trying. I won't do it to the point where I make my own life miserable being unreasonable with my expectations of myself. But I will never stop trying to make this next one a little bit better than last one. 
here's an example that even experienced event runners like us now can kind of make mistakes with. When we pared down our instructors, we, we went to kind of a new model that was a little bit less. And then we started adding some more hands-on because people want to do it. We ended up with a big project in the last event, an all-day project. Because of a few things that went wrong with supplies, because we just couldn't get things as fast as we thought we could, um, it, took even, it took seriously all day instead of most of the day, which was the original plan. That meant some things didn't happen. Additionally, we did a day that was like the year before. Now, the year before, I think we did a good job of marketing what we were doing. We were taking a one-day networking celebration, everybody hanging out, and I cooked like five courses of different food for people. Well, we did that again last year, and we did it um, in conjunction with one day getting taken, so there was only really one day of instructors. And because of weather and my voice... And that long project, nobody got a property walkthrough, which a lot of people really wanted. So that came up that they didn't get the walkthrough. But I knew that. And I felt bad, but I also said, I, I, I'm just, I can't. I'm done. I'm not going to do a good job. And so I, I figured out how to take care of that this year. But what I also heard from my spies was that people weren't happy with enough content. And like, so, okay, you're not going to have that complaint this year. I promise you. 15 sessions in three days, you are going to get a lot of content and a lot of diversity. It probably would have somewhat happened anyway, because I saw it myself. But without my spies, I wouldn't have really known that there was that underlying, hey, is this all we're doing feeling in a significant number of students? They won't tell me, so I need someone who will. And that... You know, I, I didn't know that people really, I knew the goat yoga guy, but I didn't realize how many people that come to these events are successful entrepreneurs already. And that if we're going to do some entrepreneur stuff, it probably needs to be in a breakout session. And then the level needs to be clear. So are we talking advanced stuff for the person who wants to take their business to another level? Or are we talking the person who's just trying to get started? Those are two totally different audiences. And then you have a whole segment of people that are like, you know what, my business is what it is. That's why I'm here. Because I can do whatever the hell I want. They don't, they're done with that. They're, they're there, like they do business all the time, right? They're there to talk about mead, right? They're there to have a rum tasting. They're, they're there to, because they're in a advanced business world every day. And they want to hang out with freaking people who like ducks. And I need to make sure that I have enough in it to fit all of that. We missed that mark last year. I didn't know how badly we missed it until my spies told me. You want spies. You want people who will fit in and hear the side chatter. Now, anybody that's ever been a military leader, NCO or officer, knows how important this is. This is not, this is not your narc, right? This is, what do the men really think of me? What do the men really think of me as a leader? What what do they not like about me as a leader? They don't like that you're a hard ass. Well, they're gonna you know in the army you're gonna get over that. But if there's an actual failing that I have as a leader, I want to know what it is. It's that same mindset. You'll never be as good as you can be unless you can handle the criticism. What you're not doing as good as you could. And spies are the only people that will tell you that. My final thoughts on this today is: Let me be honest. It is harder than you will ever think that it is until you do it. It really is. It is. It's hard because it's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things to do. It is also hard because there's almost a blissful ignorance in the beginning when you first start doing things. These things with, oh, just be great, and you'll get through. If you if you kind of follow the advice I gave you today, you'll get through it. Don't let it be daunting. But as you build it successfully, and people are coming back every year, you'll find a a certain amount of weight on your shoulders that, my God, 60 people, this year 65 paying students is how many we took, are going to give me their hard-earned money, take time off their work, and in many cases away from their family. And I know when you have livestock and all, it often involves paying somebody to take care of them while you're gone. And they're going to come spend four days at my farm with me, 
Oh my God, do I owe them. I owe them so much more than $500 of value. Because that's just the money. The time is what matters. Like These people are spending one of their vacation weeks in my backyard in a tent. That is a... It's it's a responsibility, and it's humbling. And so what will happen is you will pass through, if you do this consistently, successfully, you will pass through the blissful ignorance phase to the wholesale realizing of the responsibility you have phase. And then if you keep doing it, you'll what will trade it off for you is you'll get really good at it. We used to be really stressed about right now. We're not. Right now, the wife's stressed because the kids are, won't, won't settle down today. That's about it. But we used to be like, oh, my God, we're not ready. Like, we're at a point now where maybe we're almost a little bit too relaxed with it. And it's because we've done it so many times and we know we're good at it. We have a plan. We have a staff. We know we can rely on. We have, you know, let's say the taco truck doesn't show up. Yeah, we'll call Spring Creek. You're getting barbecue twice. And, and everybody will understand, right? I don't expect that to happen. But everybody will understand. Like, we will just do what needs to be done to get it done. On food, I guess one thing I didn't say about on feeding people, catering stuff's great, and then we do some of that. Anything that really needs to be cooked should be cooked or partially cooked and ready, and you should have everything you need. And because the idea that you the, – the more pre, pre-event cooking you can do, the better. So I think with food – a little addition I want to put here at the end is you should serve things that are well-suited to being reheated, right? You shouldn't really serve things that really need to be cooked now unless you, like when we did the porch stuff, that worked, right? Um, so if you have a big griddle or something, you can throw stuff down and do it right away. But, but do, like, I don't think pasta makes a lot of sense. We're even going to do it. I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. We're going to do a small amount of it, and it's done with other things. It's mostly meat. Because, like, if it sits, it's just – or if you're going to do pasta, you cook the noodles, and then everything else is ready to go. Like, you should think about, like, things that sit and get soggy are bad. If you're going to do sandwiches, the best thing to do is, is put out all the meat and, like, here's the roast beef, here's the ham, here's the stuff, here's your bun – Here's your like almost like salad bar set up the the lettuce and tomato and onion, and let people make their own sandwich. That way you don't have to custom anything. You don't have a tomato soaking into a roll like that kind of basic one on one food service mentality uh, is is hugely helpful. Remember, you're going to try to feed the hell out of people, but you're not a restaurant, so you can't try to be like a restaurant. You have to be like what you are, service. And oh man, I can't believe this wasn't in my notes, but we learned this one the hard way. And it works so easy now. Do not let people serve themselves the food. Don't. Have staff portion the food out the first time people go through the line. And then leave everything out and say, if anybody wants seconds, go get whatever you want. You'll never run. If you if you plan your food right, a you know, certain amount of food for a certain amount of people, and a little bit over, you'll, you'll probably have to deal some, do something with the surplus food. You'll send food home with people. You'll eat leftovers for a couple days yourself or whatever. Like You will not run out. If you let people serve themselves, they get in smorgasbord friggin' mentality. And you got big dudes working hard all day, and they come in and rah, and then it, the competition thing kicks in, and the next person's taking a bunch. And, the next, and then you end up watching people throw away food while there's very little left for the last people in line. If you portion the food from your staff and allow seconds, nobody will leave hungry. But you won't waste anywhere near as much food. We we learned that, and it was like one day we, like we're going to have to do that. And I know that it might even, like, and we tell people, look, it might look like a small amount of food, but you eat it and come back and get more. And the people that you can tell were like, that's not a lot. Your eyes are bigger than your, your stomach a lot of times as you get into these and they maybe don't realize like there's this there's so many different things going on this plate um, that's a huge piece of advice that will save you a lot of problems if you'll follow it so if you've been considering running an event man go for it go for it um, and I, I I don't know how to put this I'm not saying don't reach out to me but don't rely on me to help you with it 
uh, I may or may not get involved in somebody's event or workshop. But, I mean, i got enough going on on my own. Um, you'll notice I don't go out and, like, cooperate with, like, even good friends like Paul Wheaton, who I know could bring people in to my workshops because not only do I not need it, I don't, I don't want to have to reciprocate. And it's not that I'm not in a reciprocation. It's that in that context because – It's one thing for me to say, hey, Joe's having an event. You might want to check it out. That's one thing, and I, I can probably do that most of the time. Um, but usually what, what it entails is people want me to come. And, man, now, you're, now I'm taking time off of my business, and I'm running. Basically, I am the draw at your event. That's hard to do. It's not that I don't ever do it. It's just hard. It's really hard. You know, I have a wife who deals with all the crazy shit you deal with, and Jack's, being Jack Spirko's wife is a crazy ride, okay? It really is. And so when we go away, she wants to go to the beach. She wants to go to the mountains. She wants to just unplug, and I try to give her that. So if I do it, I can do it for a person or two a year. I can't do it for everybody that wants to, and you should, if you're going to rely on influencers, it should be early on, and it should be to get exposure And most influencers, if what you're doing makes sense, will, will help you with that. But they don't necessarily need to be there. And you need to, if you build this right, you don't just build it, they'll come. If you build it right, they'll come back. And that's what you need to be thinking. How do I, if you're going to take this as a revenue stream in your operation, then you should build it so they'll come back. So that you don't have to worry about whether Jack can help you or not. Because if you bring... If you decide that your event capacity is 35 people, it'd be a oh man, that's a home run in the beginning. I, I, it might even be overwhelming to do 35 people in the beginning. You might want to stop at 20, start with 25 people. So let's say you start with 25 people, and you do a good enough job that 50% of the people want to come back, and next year you want to go to 35 people. Well, you already have about a third of your tickets sold. And then you bring in more, and if you can bring... And, and, and if maybe some of the people who wanted to come back the first year can't come back the second year, but they still want to come back. So maybe the people that want to come back are 80%, but only 50% can. Now they're coming back the third year, plus you've built more into that. And every year you do it. You know, we went from selling events out in two hours to selling events out in 10 minutes. And selling more than we ever sold before. And going, yeah, I think we can handle this number of people. And I would have never sold 65 seats three years ago even. We sold about, I think the most we've ever sold before was around 50. But we've, we're confident what we're doing now. We know some people are going to attrit because, you know, something happens and they can't come. And I've been, I've been actually having it happen and offering to the backup list. And we have such a big back. We have a backup list this year of, of over, over 40 people, of people that are on standby. But we're getting close. And so you can run a standby list if you sell out. But the closer you get, the more no's you'll get from your standby list. If you have a, a standby list of a couple, even a couple three, and you lose somebody three weeks out, you'll probably be able to sell your ticket that you lost. When you get up to a week or less, people can't make arrangements in their lives. But if you build it right, you build it so they'll come back, you have this 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 power. And if you you know if you can run gross revenue of about twenty four thousand dollars off an event like this You can probably profit somewhere in the neighborhood. I mean, really taking care of people, doing all this cool shit, paying staff and all. You can still profit. If you're not doing equipment rental, like, you know, you're not doing excavators and stuff, you're not paying operators. We can run an event like this for around $9,000 to $10,000. So, you know, a $24,000 event will put around $14,000 in your pocket. That's pretty nice. It's not enough to live on. But a lot of you that maybe are building the kind of off-grid lifestyle, low-cost lifestyle, etc. I mean, there are people that $30,000 a year they can live really good on, especially if a lot of that money you know, is in the form of cash or cryptocurrency. And if they can have like another $15,000, $20,000 of side income, maybe that's all you need. So I do think, even though I said don't think you can make a living wage out of it out of the gate, it can be built if you build it the right way. You know, and think about how you do it. Like, if you just try to, like, if you try to do it out of my community, and this is not selfishness at all, I'm just saying, like, you're limited in what you can do, and you can only slice the pie so many times. And then you're competing with me, with my audience of people that already love me. And if you build it on your own, 
you you're not doing that. You have you have the power. And then you if you if you do it on your own, well maybe it's not permaculture and survivalism. Maybe it's something totally different. Maybe it's what you love and it should be because it's a lot of work, right? Maybe it's all dedicated to off grid, you know. So it's sort of the same but different. Or maybe it's something totally different. And I practice what I pe preach with that. When I started this show, it wasn't just workshops that I avoided it with. It was everything. I was a, a, a power member, like, all the, all the time, every day on the Backwoods Home Forum. I just went dark there. I didn't want to steal Backwoods Home people out of their community. If they came here, they showed up to listen to my podcast, fine. But I wasn't going to be seen as a poacher by Dave Duffy. So it, you know, whether or not it would have happened or not, anyway, I don't know. But you know, three years later, when Dave Duffy wanted to sponsor the show, and Backwoods Home has now been a sponsor of the show for what almost ten years. It, it certainly helps that I wasn't pulling away from him. So we ended up working together anyway. But I wasn't trying to to siphon from Backwoods Home. I built my own market. As important as I think that is in you know becoming a content creator, a podcaster, a YouTuber, or whatever, I think when it comes to if you want to build workshops into a revenue stream that's reliable, even if it's not all your money, it's just this thing you know you can take care of. I mean, think about it this way: if you have a house payment of a thousand dollars a month, that's pretty low, I know, but a lot a lot of people do, and you can make twelve thousand dollars a year off an event. You live in your house for free. See how that works? If you want to be able to reliably know you can do it, you have to not be a once-and-done flash in the pan, and you can't do it by cutting off a piece of somebody else's pie. You have to do it by establishing yourself to the point where you have traction that you can stand alone. And again, that's not just events. I'm just throwing it in because events are a place where I see the most of people trying to ride on somebody else is success. Nothing wrong with working with influencers, man. There's people that are huge today that I helped when they needed influencer help. Justin Rose is a perfect example. He came to me when he when no one knew who he was and said, "Hey, look, I'm doing this thing with the chicken videos and all and I'm going to can I get on as an interview? Will you back my Yeah, yeah, fine. Everything, man. No problem. And he knew what he was doing, man. He went to every influencer in the space, and he had his shit together. In fact, one of the reasons I said yes is not just because he asked and asked nicely, but because I also could look at what he was doing and go, "You got your shit together. Like you're not gonna, I'm not gonna get hurt by helping you." But then he immediately used what he gained from that to build his own thing. And there's plenty of people today who know who I am, and you're like Justin Rhodes. Who's he? And there's plenty of people that know who Justin Rhodes are, like, what's a Jack Spirico? I've never heard of one of those things. And that's that's the way to build this. Anyway, that's it for today. No song of the day. No closing segment. That's what I got for you. That went over an hour. I really didn't even think it was going to go that long. I thought I'd get it more in, like, 45 minutes. But, man, if you want to do this, take a shot at it. And final piece of advice, if there are things like this in your space, go to a few. Go to a few and make notes of everything that works great and everything that you find, like, I really don't like this, and then go try to do it better. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Revolution is you. 